Welcome to the podcast of Vertical Life Church. We hope and pray these messages encourage and challenge you to find your glorious purpose in Christ Jesus. For more information, visit us on the web at www.vlchurch.tv. Today, we are jumping back into our study, uh, the story of the called the Great Romance. We are in the book of Numbers, so if you have your Bible with you or your, the YouVersion Bible app, uh, you can turn there to the, uh, the notes, um, but the verses will also be on the screen. But uh, we began this series uh, 26 uh, weeks ago, um, and before the, the last series we did on the sevenfold focus, and what my heart was, what God kind of really spoke to my heart was that he wanted us to fall in love with Jesus all over again. That really the core, the center of the Christian life, the Christian experience is to fall in love with Jesus. This is the core of who we are. And I just believe that the church corporately, not not just here, but everywhere, has kind of gotten wrapped up with a bunch of things that's caused that to diminish a little bit. We say we gather for Jesus. We say we gather because we love the Lord. But it's really become about some other things like lights and sounds and, and music and bands and, and how skinny the jeans of the pastor are and, and like all, all the different like new and crazy things that our culture tries to do in the day. And that's really not what the church is about at all. The church is about something greater, something bigger. And on my heart, God led us to begin right in the first pages of the Bible, beginning in the book of Genesis, to go through the Bible, not in a series, but really in a journey. We are calling the great romance because the Bible is the greatest romance story ever written. And it's one that continues to be written in the lives of people every day as God is cultivating a people for himself. Jesus is cultivating a bride for himself to dwell with for all eternity, for all eternity. And it's this process of how God is pursuing the hearts of his people. So in, in the beginning of the book of Genesis, we looked at how everything began, how the intention of God was for us to enjoy his goodness and blessings for all time. And we had an awesome start. We don't know how long it was between the first day of creation or day six where man was created and the fall. But we know that it was a good start. Everything was good. Um, all things were good in the hood. That's what we could, you know, the message translation probably has it in there somewhere. It was all good in the hood until Adam and Eve decided to rebel and choose to follow the leadership of the devil. And they traded being kings and queens in the kingdom of God for being slaves in the kingdom of darkness. They traded their position and all the pain and suffering we experience in the world today, every failed marriage, every broken relationship, every uh, painful experience is a result of that singular decision many thousands of years ago. All pain came when we turned our backs on God. But God would not leave us helpless. Though we were separated from him, he would not leave us helpless. He would prophesy of a day when a savior would crush the head of the enemy and deliver his people from his power, reuniting us back together in eternal relationship forever and forever and forever. And this moment happened when Jesus Christ was lifted up on the cross and gave his life for the sins of all mankind. The Bible calls Jesus the second Adam. 
who didn't fall prey to the lure of temptation and sin and the enemy's devices, but he humbled himself even to the point of giving his own life on the cross in obedience to God. And God gave him a name which is above every name, that every knee would bow, every tongue would confess that he is Christ the Lord to the glory of God our Father. Do you believe Jesus is Lord? Amen. He is God. He became the payment for our sins, arose the third day, conquering death in the grave. With all power and authority, he arose with the keys of the kingdom in hand. And for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, who places their faith and trust in Jesus, stop being slaves and once again join Jesus, the King of kings, on the throne as kings and queens in the kingdom of God. For we are seated with him right now in the place of power in heavenly places. This, the entire Bible, from Old to the New Testament, is the story of how God created, man fell, God intervenes, man rebels, God saves, and though many turn away, there is a righteous remnant who will turn to the Lord to be saved. Those who give Jesus their hearts and are called the beloved of God, the sons and daughters of the Most High who in death now and in the kingdom and eternity will enjoy the goodness of God for all man or all time, for all eternity. So cover to cover, if you get your Bible out, you get the big old dusty family Bible that's been on your end table for, for years that no one opens because when you do, you can't even read it anyways because the words you know, are in Old English. When you open that Bible from cover to cover, what you'll discover is the greatest romance story ever about how God is demonstrating his unrelenting pursuit of the hearts who will choose him. And you and I are in those pages. We are in those pages. But where we are in the story now in this great romance novel is, is we have come out of, we're in the, the land of... Uh, the wilderness of Sinai, Israel has been brought out of Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea, and now they're at the base of this mountain where God has encountered them on the mountain, this place called Sinai. And he, through this covenant, he's offered them a covenant we also call the Old Testament. Through the offering of this covenant and the acceptance of its terms, this people group, Israel, who's been favored by God because of the uh, faithfulness of their ancestors, they move from simply being friends of God to now being the bride of God. They enter in a covenant relationship, becoming like the bride of Almighty God. This people group would be betrothed and engaged and then married to the God of the universe. So we come out of Exodus, and during this time, as they're going through this betrothal and give, God's giving them the covenant, the book of Leviticus was written, and in Leviticus, it's filled with not only laws and terms for this covenant, instructions on how to worship and sacrifice, uh, but also it's filled with hope because if they were to break the covenant, it tells them how they can restore the relationship again with Almighty God. So now they have the law, they have the sacrifices, there's some social laws to govern their interactions with one another, some purity laws on how to keep themselves pure before the Lord so that the people who are given the privilege of enjoying the presence and favor of God would also be responsible for keeping the house of God clean, for keeping his home pure, righteous, and holy, to be holy as he is holy. See, God is a righteous and holy God. His standard is absolute 
purity, absolute holiness, and the ceremonial laws, and the social laws, the dietary laws, the laws about sickness and how to deal with it, laws on sexual and religious practice were all aimed at keeping Israel in this place where they could enjoy the presence of God and all the blessings that come of it. We talked at length about how Jesus fulfilled the purpose of these laws and set us free from being in bondage to the law to walking in his grace. Praise God for that. Not to be condemned by sin, but set free to live the abundant life. So now they, they entered this relationship. They agreed to the terms of the covenant. They, in essence, said, I do in the wedding ceremony. God is now ready to make good on his promise that he gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he was preparing a land to give them a special land, a promised land, where they would prosper as the priests of God, the lights to the whole world, showing people the way of righteousness and salvation. And here's where we get to the book of Numbers. They've been in this place at Sinai for 12 months, a year since they've crossed the Red Sea, and the book of Numbers begins to unfold, and it's not so much a book of victory, but it's a book of tragedy. What I love about the Bible is that it's very real. It doesn't sugarcoat things. It says everything exactly as it is. And you would think this people group that have God literally in their midst would just be ripe, uh, filled with victory after victory, but this book tells a different story. We see in and throughout this book the same cycle. God commands, Israel rebels, and instead of blessing, they have to endure cursing because that was part of the covenant. That was part of the agreement they made with God. Jesus, in the New Testament, Luke chapter 12, verse 48, here's what he says. It kind of explains the, the, the heart behind this relationship. He says, someone who does not know but then does something wrong will be punished only lightly. When someone who has been given much, much will be required in return. And when someone has been entrusted with much, even more will be required. So put yourself in the place of Israel. What could be given to you more than the physical presence of God being in your midst? The blessings of God being upon you. The word of God's being spoken over you. The law of God being given and delivered to you. The armies of God fighting for you and enjoying a position that no other nation in the world occupied. No other nation in the world had God in their midst. No other nation had the favor of God, the blessing of God, the protection of God, the word of God, the covenant of God. They had a relationship and an experience unlike any other nation. So when they turned their backs on God, to whom much was given, much was also required. They endured harsh discipline. And we see this again and again in the book of Numbers. Now the books of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, are also called the Torah. These five books have English names, but they also have Hebrew names. And we don't often use the Hebrew names because we don't speak Hebrew. But the names of, in the Hebrew are taken from the first few words of each book. And the meaning of these names, the book of Genesis, it means in the beginning. Exodus means the names. Leviticus means, and he called. And the book of Numbers, its name is actually in the wilderness. The entire book is about Israel's journey in the wilderness. And though God wanted Israel to take Israel into the promised land, they spend the entirety of this book, wandering the wilderness over the course of 40 years. They'd already spent a year at Sinai. Now 
they're getting ready to take this journey, but yet they spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness. That is the setting for this book, this wilderness journey. Israel in the wilderness is learning to follow the Lord and trust him by faith. And everything we read is a combination of their successes and failures they have along the way. That's the setting. So as we open this book, we're going to read in Numbers chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. We're going to begin to see some really interesting things. Number, verse 1, it says, A year after Israel's departure from Egypt, the Lord spoke to Moses in the tabernacle in the wilderness of Sinai. And on the first day of the second month of that year, he said, From the whole community of Israel, record the names of all the warriors by their clans and families. List all the men, 20 years old or older, who are able to go to war. You and Aaron must register the troops, and you will be assisted by one of the family leaders from each tribe. This is, number starts off as one of those books where you begin to open it. You're like, okay, what's God going to say? And you're met with a bunch of names you can't pronounce and a bunch of numbers you have no, no, no idea what to do with. This is why in the English it's called numbers. I'll give you a little pastor's trick when you're reading the Bible. If you come upon a Hebrew name you don't know, just say it as fast as you can, confidently, and no one knows the difference. That's what I do. So, you know, just to give you a little inside trick there. But what's interesting is in the beginning pages of this book, God instructs Moses to take a census of the people, which also appears to be a violation of the command he gave earlier in Exodus chapter 30, that if they counted the people, unless they made the people pay a ransom for each person counted, they would pay money to the tabernacle treasury. A curse would break out upon the people. Every person 20 years old or older, every male who is of fighting age, they would have to pay a tax according to their worth to the tabernacle if they were to do a, a census. This proceeds would also go to fund the tabernacle and the ministry there. But if they counted the people in any other way other than what was prescribed, a curse would break out and be devastating among the people. And many, many years later, when King David is king, and he gets to this place in his life where he starts being a little full of himself, my parents would say, too big for their britches. That's what my parents would say. But he starts getting overconfident and cocky. He decides, I want to take an assessment of the glory of my kingdom. He takes a census, and God strikes out against him, and 70,000 Hebrews die. In that census. So there was a warning to counting the people. But God yet has Moses count the people here. There were over 600,000 soldiers accounted for, which leads many scholars to believe in, uh, if you were to include the women and children under 20, they would have a population of upwards of 2 million or more. We're talking about a massive number of people in this place, not insignificant. But the reason why God had Moses count the people was not for them to glory in their numbers because their glory didn't come from their size. It came from God himself. The glory of the nation of Israel was not in their size or their prosperity. It was in God. But God has Moses count the people, the men 20 years of age or older, who are of fighting age, to assess his military assets as well as begin to organize people into groups. And we see in the first pages, these are, it's not just a boring list of names in numbers, but it is God's preparation in organizing the people, putting the right people in the right places of leadership, in the right places in the camp. He defines their roles and responsibilities. He puts everything in order. 
We discovered over this study that the tabernacle of God, as he began to construct it in Exodus and Leviticus, it not only represents Jesus in so many ways, but also it represents the heavenly dwelling place of God in heaven, the very throne room of Almighty God. So as you picture God gathering and grouping everyone together, he's not just randomly organizing people, he's creating a visual on earth what is a reflection of what transpires or is happening in heaven. So there's, there's intention behind what God is doing. In Numbers chapter 1, 44 through 54, as it continues on in the organization, here's what God commands Moses. It says, These were the men registered by Moses, Aaron, and the twelve leaders of Israel, all listed according to their ancestral descent. They were registered by families, all the men of Israel who were 20 years old or older and able to go to war. The total number was 603,550. But this total did not include the Levites. For the Lord had said to Moses, do not include the tribe of Levi in this registration. Don't count them with the rest of the Israelites. Put the Levites in charge of the tabernacle of the covenant, along with all of its furnishings and equipment. They must carry the tabernacle and all of its furnishings as you travel. They must take care of take care of it and camp around it whenever it's time for the tabernacle to move the Levites will take it down and when it's time to stop they'll set it up again but any unauthorized person who goes too near the tabernacle must be put to death each tribe of Israel will camp in a designated area with its own family banner but the Levites will camp around the tabernacle of the covenant to protect the community of Israel from the Lord's anger the Levites are responsible to stand guard around the tabernacle, so the Israelites did just as the Lord had commanded. So or just a casual reading of this, you're like, okay, this is what they did. No, that's interesting. Let's move on. But there's so much truth going on in here, and I want you to see it. They took the number of the troops, and then God gathers the Levites, the priests of Israel, as the non-fighting class, and he puts them in charge of the tabernacle. And so whenever God would lead Israel on their journey, whenever the pillar of fire would come down or the cloud would come down to lead them uh, on their journey, the Levites, the priests, would be responsible to break everything down just as the Lord commanded. And then when God's presence stopped, he stopped moving, it would be the priests that would then set everything up exactly as God commanded to be set up. So his instructions were very specific, and it was very orderly. Everything God commanded was orderly and efficient. The word in 1 Corinthians 14 says, God is not the God of confusion or disorder. Whenever God does something, it is very orderly and efficient. There's structure to it. Look at the universe. The fact that we can do uh, physics is a testimony of the orderly and precise nature of God. The wisdom of God. God doesn't do anything without thinking through it and having it planned out ahead of time. He's not a willy-nilly type of God, which should give us all a lot of comfort when he leads us in our lives. We wouldn't expect anything else from the Lord. The Lord, as he's organizing them together, though the other tribes protected the people from enemies outside the camp, the other tribes other than the Levites were set in their military battalions. The priests... This is significant. The priests, they camped around the tabernacle to protect those in the camp from danger. What danger? From the anger of the Lord. 
So the military protected from threats on the outside, the priests protected from threats coming from the inside, which is very significant. That God had everyone in mind. God had the best intentions of all the people as he organized them as he did. Safety on the outside and safety on the inside. And not only did he have the Levites camp around the tabernacle, but he broke the Levites into sub-tribes or clans and set them in a specific order. And he also organized the other tribes, grouped them together, and organized them around the tabernacle in a specific order. And I want to show you uh, what that uh, looks like in this diagram. It's kind of hard to see, but on the uh, my left, your right, that is the east side. North is at the top, east on your right, south on the bottom, and west on the left. Beginning on the east side is the entrance of the tabernacle. So if you were to go into the tabernacle, into the very presence of God, you would have to approach it from the east. And you would not only approach it from the east, but you would have to go through the first camp, which was the camp of Judah. And in the camp of Judah, there were actually three tribes, the tribe of Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. And this is how God uh, instructed them to camp on the east side. Now, if, if you were thinking about birth order, Reuben was the oldest son, but he is not the first one listed in the camp. It's Judah. Reuben had a transgression when he was alive back in Genesis, and God took this privilege from him. And so Judah became uh, the first one listed in the line. Judah is also the, the tribe in which the Messiah was prophesied to come from, the lion from the tribe of Judah. All right, so we can begin to kind of look at the order and kind of see what God is revealing for us. So Judah is listed first. Before you can approach the tabernacle to enter it, you must pass through the camp of Judah, the camp of the Messiah, which had the tribes of Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun in it. And as you approach the tabernacle, once you pass those three tribes, you would come to the tent of Moses and Aaron. Moses was the prophet of Israel, but he also acted as a king. Though they didn't have a king at this time, he was the one in charge of the nation. Anything Moses said, they acted as if God had said it, and they did it. So Moses is this prophet and kingly figure in the nation of Israel, and Aaron, of course, is the high priest. So you come through these tribes to the tabernacle. You have to pass the tent of Moses and Aaron. And what is amazing here is how this connects even to Genesis chapter 3 when man sinned. When Adam and Eve sinned and they were cast out of the garden, God kicks them out of his presence, out of the Garden of Eden. He places angels in front of the entrance to the Garden of Eden with a flaming sword so they can't come in on the east side of the Garden of Eden so that they can't come in. If you were to go into the Garden of Eden, what would you find there? You would find the Tree of Life, which is why he protected the entrance to the Garden of Eden. But now... To go to the presence of God, you don't find an angel with a flaming sword. You find a prophet king and a priest who guards the entrance to the presence of the Lord, who you can only enter as you pass through the Messiah's tribe. So what are we seeing here? As you want to enter the very presence of God, you have to come through Messiah's tribe to the place where a prophet, priest, and king resides who acts as the door to the presence of the living God. Jesus said in John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but by me. Right here 
in the very setup of the camp, we see a prophecy of the Messiah would be from the tribe of Judah, and that in order to enter to the presence of God, you would have to first come through him. Again, names are so very important in the scripture, in the study, the camp of Judah being the first one. If you were to look at their names, the name Moses means to be drawn out. The name Aaron means to be a light bringer or a mountain. Judah means thanksgiving or praise. Issachar means a reward. Zebulun means to be exalted. If you were to put these names together and see the story that's being told here just in these names of this tribe, it would re reveal this story that says, in the approach to the tabernacle to enter to the presence of the Lord, the story being told is that through worship and thanksgiving, the one drawn out of this world brought to the mountain of God where the light bringer dwells, um, would find their reward. And of course, Jesus is the light of the world. God is telling us in advance, thousands of years before, in the numbers and in the camps, what he's going to do. Reuben is in the south. Reuben, of course, the tribe around the tabernacle was the Kohathite clan. They were the Levites that were camped to the south. R Reuben, um, his name means behold a son. He was with Simeon and Gad. Simeon's name means heard or God is listening. Gad means good fortune or to be fortunate. If you were to approach from the south, the story being told there is when you behold a son, the Lord will hear and accept you and you'll be blessed as you enter to the assembly of the Lord. The Kohathite clan, their name means assembly. So each camp, each, each um, group is not just camped in a specific way due to their number, but their names are telling a story about the very Messiah himself. Dan, if we look at the north, Dan, his, um, his name means a judge. It's the camp of judgment. And this has an ultimate connection, again, to the heavenly tabernacle. In Numbers chapter 1, verse 51, what I think is so telling is this commandment. It seems really harsh, but... It says, whenever it's time for the tabernacle to move, the Levites will take it down. And when it's time to stop, they'll set it up again. But any unauthorized person who goes too near the tabernacle must be put to death. Can you imagine being a kid, like during this time in the camp of Israel? Like just running around, playing hopscotch, or playing freeze tag with your friends, or hide, hide and go seek. And, and all of a sudden the announcement's made, okay, we're getting ready to move, everyone's packing up, and you're you're kind of half obeying your parents by staying near the camp, but you're like, oh, I'm going to go find this awesome spot, and you just kind of break through the camp. You go a little further out than you think, and you stumble, and you actually uh, trip and fall, and you, uh, you're on the other side where the tabernacle is, and boom, you die. You know, it's just, it's just like a crazy thought. Like anyone who doesn't, isn't authorized can't go near the tabernacle. Only the priests can go near the tabernacle. Anyone from the other camps had to stay out. Though it seems kind of harsh, the armies of Israel, again, they mirror or represent the armies of heaven, the angels of glory. In Hebrews 1.14, says these angels are only servants. They're spirits sent to care for the people who inherit salvation. When God created the angelic hosts, he created them to be ministering spirits to the church, to people who would be saved. The angels of heaven minister to or fight for believers in Christ. But there was a moment where some angels had a different idea that they weren't going to stay where they were supposed to stay. In Jude chapter 6, 
Jude says, I remind you of the angels who did not stay within the limits of authority God gave them, but left the place where they belonged. God has kept them securely chained in prisons of darkness, waiting for that great day of judgment. What happened was, is as God is showing us how he has the earthly camp set up, there were angels who were camped in the heavenly place who decided they didn't want to stay in their camp. They wanted to go to a different camp. They wanted to come into the, the place where those who would inherit salvation, mankind, would, would be camped, and those that were close to the Lord, and they wanted to try to take God's place. Satan uh, is said to have uh, wanted to set his throne up even above God's. It says on the sides of the north, that place of judgment, that, that he would become a judge even over God. So we're not just looking at a camp with structure and numbers. We're looking at a revelation of a greater story, giving us greater detail of what was happening in the spiritual world as God was leading Israel into the promised land. In Numbers chapter 2, verse 34, so we see this picture that God didn't simply have them organized in the camp a certain way, but he also organized them for how they would march how they would move as they followed the Lord. In Numbers chapter 2, verse 34, it says, The people of Israel did everything the Lord commanded Moses. Each clan and family set up and marched under their banners exactly as the Lord instructed them. They had organization, they had order, they had leadership, and they had a plan for how to move. And what I love about this story, even just these opening pages, what I love about the Word of God and we get lost in the details, is that even before God was ready to move, before God was ready to move them into the promise, God himself had to get his house in order. Before God was ready to take Israel from that place of betrothal, of, uh, of covenant, and take them into the fulfillment of their promise, God had to get his house in order. God, even before he was ready to move, from the design of and construction of the tabernacle, the roles and responsibilities of each clan, how to set up, how to tear down, how to march. God did not move Israel from the wilderness to the promised land without first getting his house in order. Now, the wilderness is not a hospitable place. It was called the wilderness of sin. That's where we get the name Sinai, which means thorns or clay. So it was the wilderness of clay or thorns. It wasn't very... Resourceful. God had to provide supernaturally with water and food for the multitudes in the nation of Israel. It was a difficult place to be. It stretched them. The wilderness stretches you. It's painful. It's uncomfortable and sometimes can push you to the brink. And I think we often find ourselves in seasons of life that feel like the wilderness. Anybody been in a wilderness situation before? You know, you get an amen or maybe an amen, you know. Not an amen. 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 It's a difficult place. It's a place where we just want a cool drink. We just want some reprieve from the scorching heat. One thing after another seems to be falling apart. And it's not because we don't have a promise in the wilderness or that we're lacking a word from the Lord. Think about it. Israel received their promise even before they entered as slaves. They received their, their promise of this land while they're in slavery. They received this promise of the land after they became free. It wasn't from a lack of a word or a lack of a promise. Israel, they, they were with God. God took them into the wilderness after he set them free. 
And at that mountain, he kept them there a year after they'd been delivered from their slavery before God even was ready to move. He spent that whole year organizing and getting his house in order. And, and if we think about this question, why would he wait so long to get his house in order before he could take them on this journey? It's because it was about the journey, not the destination. Why did God wait so long? It's not because of the destination. It was because of the journey. It would be in the journey, in the midst of the wilderness, that relationship, dependency, and trust in God would be established through surrender so that they could find and experience the beauty and promise of their salvation. It's through the wilderness. In the wilderness, they would have great success, but also mighty failures. From the first step into the journey to the last step at the door of the promised land, they finally became a people ready to trust God and follow him in the midst of even impossible battles, things they were unwilling to do at the beginning. See, we humans, we're impatient people. You know, they say, don't ever ask God for patience. Don't pray for patience. Because God will not give you patience. He will give you many opportunities to be patient. If you haven't tried it, give it a shot. Let me know how it goes for you. Don't pray for patience. But it's in those opportunities that we learn lessons. You see... We want to go from the promise to the provision right away. We want to go the fastest way, the fastest route, but more times than not, it's the slow, long way around that produces the most fruit in our lives. It's the wandering season where we learn a great deal of lessons, and those lessons we are positioned to appreciate the provision, to appreciate what it took, the sacrifices it took to receive it, to appreciate where we were and all God had to do to get us to where we now are. It's almost like we struggle with an attitude of entitlement. God, you said, you said you'd fix my finances. Why are they not fixed yet? You'd fix my, my marriage, but we still jacked up. You said you'd fix my relationship, but it's not mended. You said you'd fix my job, but I'm still hitting the dead end. You said you'd do these things. Why haven't? It's because we have this entitlement that just because God promised, we should instantly have it. But, beloved, if we rush in the wilderness, we may race past what God has promised. If we rush in the wilderness, we may race past what God really wants to do in the process, the very thing that enables us to experience the provision of his promise on that appointed day. My wife and I, we've been through some very difficult seasons, seasons where we didn't know if our marriage was going to make it. And I look back on those breakthrough moments when God intervened and kept that hope alive. You know, and there, there are times where I'd, I was working a job and, you know, was, we were living paycheck to paycheck and I lost my job and didn't know how to, we were going to, like, afford to live. We don't know where the finances were going to come from. And at the right time, God provided the need. In every battle, in every wilderness experience, I've not just been broken down. But in the process, I've also been built back up. And with every step we took to follow the Lord, we grew stronger. We trusted more. We worshiped harder. More of his presence and grace was revealed in our lives. And like the tabernacle, if you think about his instructions to the Levites, like the tabernacle, 
often something must be broken down before it can be moved and be built back up. The Sabbath, true fact, is often, in order to get us to stop heading the direction we're going and learn what we need to learn, God has to let us be broken down before we can be built back up. What God does in the wilderness, if we submit to his will, is he helps us get our houses in order so we can move efficiently, be protected on every side, and shift the center of our lives from me and I to God and the Lord. That everything we are is centered on the presence of God in our lives. Notice the camp was around the place where God dwelled. He's at the center. And four years ago, we were really struggling in our marriage. We just had moved into a new house, and everything seemed to be falling apart. And our house that we have now, it only has one shower for six people. Before, we had, uh, you know, two showers. Now we have one shower for six people. And the people we purchased the house from, they were a little older, and, and we thought, the, you know, the bathroom needed an update. It had carpet in the bathroom, and that was just not okay. So um, we, were, we were like, we need to remodel this right away. We have to get to it. And we're like, okay, we've got a little extra income. Let's just buy everything we need. We'll tackle it real fast. We'll get it done. We'll move on. And what I thought was going to take us a couple of weeks ended up taking several months. And so we stripped everything down. We had it down to the studs. And uh, in some areas, new shower, new vanity, new floor, new toilet, like everything was new uh, going in. And uh, it took us a lot longer than what we thought. And what we when we look back now, we look at that time and we see how our bathroom in that broken down condition reflected a lot of our relationship in our life in that moment. We were raw and we were stripped down. We were emotionally and spiritually, relationally exhausted, fully exposed. We were a mess. But you know what? Little by little, the flooring went in. New toilet got put in its place. New shower. New vanity. New paint. And before long, that bathroom was put back together. I'm so thankful for friends and family with extra water they lent us so we could take a shower during that time. That would have been really rough. My friends helped me put the flooring in. But it was over time, little by little, that that bathroom was put back together. And it was over time, little by little, our relationship was put back together. And we felt really good when that bathroom was accomplished. But right after that was done, you know what we noticed? There are more rooms in the house. So we started tackling other rooms. And we just, now four years later, finished our girls' bedroom. We've got our son's room almost done, and last but not least, the master bedroom. It will need to be tackled. But over the four years and all these different projects, you know what I've learned to do? I've learned how to fix some things on my own that I didn't know how to do before. I've learned how to not have an emotional and nervous breakdown whenever I'm trying to drywall a ceiling, even though that may have happened 10 or 14 times. There have been a lot of things that God has been showing us how to do to be caretakers of our home, making our house new, making our relationship new. Is it perfect? No. But every day, God shows us something new. And this is carried off into our ministry where it wasn't long ago our church was really struggling. But over time, as we stripped down just to do simple church, just to focus on the presence of God, little by little, 
we begin to be built back up. And you know, we're not done. There are more rooms in this ministry. There are more structures. There are more things to overall here. And even though we have this word from the Lord, many people have seen it. They've seen us in a new building. They've seen the place packed out. They've seen like the, the God just moving in a powerful way. We have this word. We have this vision. We know what God is doing. And even though we have that vision, that bright future, we are still in the process of putting our house in order to be ready to receive that blessing when it comes. And even though in your personal life you may have a promise you're holding on to for your marriage, for your finances, for, for whatever the case is, you have a promise you're holding on to. You were reading one day and you read a verse and it just stuck out to you. And you're like, this is it. This is my life verse. This is what God's going to do in my life. And you're clinging to that, yet everything in your life is looking in the opposite way. You're holding on to this promise. The beauty of the, of the wilderness, what God does is the miracles that happen in the process of wandering, in the process of trusting and following God in the wilderness. As God leads you through the wilderness, the greatest miracle that happens is not the fulfillment of the promise. The greatest miracle that happens is what God does in you. Is it awesome to have your finances restored? Yes, but when God teaches and trains you on how to properly steward your finances so it doesn't happen again, that's a greater miracle than just getting your bills paid off. When God restores your marriage through working in you to break down the behaviors, mindsets, and issues that led to the problems to begin with, sets you free from that so you can build a healthy relationship, that's a greater miracle than just not having problems for six months in a row. What God does in the wilderness the long way around is a greater miracle. The greatest miracle is what happens in you. As he refines you through the trials and struggles you face, he takes you from being broken down to build you up into who he's created you to be. That's why in James it says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and at the right time he will build you up. He will lift you up in honor. Psalm 40 is a song, is a psalm. It's also turned into a song by you two. Many of us struggle with the opening lyrics of the psalm. It says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and then he inclined and heard my cry. He lifted me up out of the pit, out of the miry clay. We can't get to the lifting up and the hearing because we didn't go through the I waited patiently part. It's in the waiting. It's in the patience. It's in the pursuit. Because as he does here, at the right time, he will pick us up out of the pit. And the more he builds us up, the more of Jesus we see revealed in our lives. You see, in the opening pages and chapters of this book, Jesus is being revealed all over it. I already skipped a bunch of stuff in my notes to spare you in a whole afternoon. I could talk about this all day. But I just want to show you some things just to show you what God is revealing in his word about Jesus and the importance of the hour we're living in right now. In Numbers chapter 3, verses 11 through 13, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Look, I've chosen the Levites from among the Israelites to serve as substitutes for all the firstborn sons of the people of Israel. The Levites belong to me, for all the firstborn males are mine. And on the day I struck down all the firstborn sons of the Egyptians, I set apart for myself the firstborn in all Israel, both of the animals and the people. They are mine, for I am 
the Lord. So God commanded the Israelites to dedicate the firstborn sons of both animals and people to the Lord. Of all who were born, the animals were sacrificed, but the people were redeemed. The parents, they would go dedicate their kids to the Lord rather than having child sacrifice because God is not really cool about that. He allowed them to be purchased back. So there was a payment that they had to be made so they could pay and bring their children back home. And because often if they would give up their firstborn son, they wouldn't have anyone to carry on legacy or to work the fields and help with the family. So it was also economical, not just religious. But what happened was is that the vacancy, the void that those sons were to occupy was still vacant before the Lord. So God called the, the Levites the priestly tribe to serve in their place. They didn't have to go to war. They didn't have an allotment of land, but they simply lived among the people. They were God's special portion. So everyone was required to pay, but yet someone else took their place. Just as giving our money to the church can't pay our debt to the Lord, no matter how much we serve him in this life, we can't repay the debt of sin we have against God, but by his grace we're saved, not by works. And another son was given to stand in our place, to redeem those who cannot redeem themselves. Jesus, our high priest, who gave his life on the cross. These priests also, they stood in the place of the other tribes. In chapter 4, they were given specific instructions how to break down the tabernacle, carry the items, who can go near the special items, how to properly handle those items, ensuring to keep all that stands in God's presence as holy and sacred. Talk about a really big job. The Levites had to, to take care of all the special items. In each case, for the ark or the tabernacle, the lampstand, all these special items, the Levites had to go in, the priests, they had to take down and to cover these items with a blue cloth, and then they wrapped it in the flesh of an animal to protect it before any of these items could be moved. So the, the color blue in the scripture represents glory. It's, it's a glory of God. Often blue is connected when God shows up. You see the color blue. So when they took down these blue cloths and put it over these items that represent Jesus, we talked about in our study, it symbolized the glory of God coming down and then being wrapped in flesh so that it could move. Just as Jesus came down was the glory of God wrapped in flesh and moved and lived among us. But what's so awesome here is the first thing the priest had to do to prepare before the moving of the tabernacle. When I saw this this week, it just blew my mind. Numbers 4, 4 and 5. Again, he separated the Levites into clans. So there was priests, but there were priests among priests. Each of them had different duties. The Kohathite clan at the tabernacle would relate to the most sacred object. Somebody say the most sacred. The Kohathite clan related to the most sacred objects. When the camp moved, Aaron the high priest and his sons would enter the tabernacle to first take down the inner curtain and then cover the Ark of the Covenant with it. So that inner curtain that separated the, the Ark in the most holy place from the holy place where the table of showbread, the candles, and the um, incense altar was, this curtain that, that you didn't go past except one time a year and only the high priest could go into that room, they took that down and they wrapped that or put that on, on top of the Ark of the Covenant. They took it down. 
And it was the Kohathite clan of the Levites that was responsible then, after the high priest took down the shroud or took down the veil, to then carry the throne or the presence of God, which was the throne of God and the people. So the high priest goes in, takes down the curtain, wraps everything up. The Kohathite clan comes in. They get the ark on the poles, and then they then carry the ark. And again, we understand how all this symbology represents Jesus. But what I want to show you here specifically, before the throne, the ark of God could become mobile for it to move, to lead the people to the next destination. This veil had to come down. Numbers chapter 4, 4 and 5. Again, I want to read it again. The duties of the Kohathites at the tabernacle relate to the most sacred objects. When the camp moves, when all the congregation moves, Aaron and his sons must enter the tabernacle first to take down the inner curtain and cover the Ark of the Covenant with it. The high priest has to enter the tabernacle, take down the inner curtain, and cover the Ark of God with it. When Jesus Christ, who is our high priest, when he died on the cross, Mark 15, 37, verse 38, here's what he says. Jesus uttered another loud cry and breathed his last in the what? The curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When Jesus gave his life, he entered into the sanctuary, into the spirit, entered the sanctuary, not just the, the sanctuary in heaven, but also simultaneously the one here on earth. And he tore the shroud. He tore this curtain from top to bottom. Our high priest, Jesus Christ, didn't bother taking it down so that it could be reused. He tore it in half so it would render it useless. This veil of separation between us. He tore it down so it could never be used again. Hebrews 9.12 says, With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered that most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. So as the priests were in charge, the high priest had to go take down the curtain. Jesus, our high priest, upon his death, went into the tabernacle and took down the curtain once and for all. Before the people could move, before the presence of God could move, this had to take place. The tabernacle had to be broken down. Jesus entered the most holy place. What did that symbolize? It symbolized that the presence of God was no longer restricted to a place. But God was getting ready to do a move. And on Acts chapter 2, the presence of God is poured out upon the people. And isn't it amazing that even today, no one knows where the Ark of the Covenant is. They can't find it. That shroud was torn. It was never put back in its rightful place. Because the presence of God does not dwell in a gold box. Where does it dwell? In the hearts of his people. Now, in Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says something very specific. He says, upon this rock, I will build my what? I will build my church. Okay, I want you to track with me. Priests, go in. High priest tears down the shroud, covers the ark. Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church, and the power of hell will not conquer it. The word church in the Greek is the word ekklesia. It means the assembly. So Jesus is building up the assembly of God. The tribe of Israel, the Levites, more specifically the clan of Levi that was charged with the care of the most holy and sacred objects to carry the ark of God on their shoulders 
And in all the elements that represent Jesus, the table of showbread, the, the golden lampstand, the altar of incense, they were to carry these things, including the Ark of the Covenant, all of these that represented Christ, was the Kohathite clan. The Kohathite clan, that name, Kohathite, means the assembly. So in this moment, as God is organizing, before God can make a move with the people of Israel, he has to get his house in order. They have to break down the tabernacle to build it back up. The high priest moves the shroud, the shroud, the curtain. The assembly then bears the presence of God and moves to the next place. Jesus, our high priest, went into that sanctuary, tore down the tabernacle, made the presence of God ready to move, and then the assembly of Jesus Christ received the Spirit of God, the most sacred object, the presence of God to dwell within us. So now we carry the most sacred objects wherever we go. We now, God has prepared a move. Right here in the midst of these names and numbers, God is already speaking in the wilderness that the people of God have been given this awesome privilege, not just to minister and worship, but to care for and carry the presence of God wherever he leads and wherever we go. And what's interesting is the Kohathite clan camped in the camp of Reuben, whose name means behold a son. It was the assembly of, of those who behold the Son, they get to carry the most sacred objects of the Lord. And not only do these mighty dwell in the presence of God, not only is God their banner, but the armies of the Lord would camp around the priests of God. God is at the center. God is what holds us together. The presence of the Lord holds us together. We dwell in his presence. That means the angels of heaven are camped all around, protecting us from enemies from the outside. And we as priests, we stand in that holy place to intercede for those who may fall under the judgment of God. When you think about this heavenly picture, Psalm 3.3 says, But you, O Lord, are a shield around me. You are my glory and the one who holds my head high. The life of a priest is one where they're shielded by the presence and armies of God. This carries, takes our cares and worries of danger and lifts them out of the wilderness because God has not given us a spirit of fear but of power, love, and a sound mind. So we can solely focus on the glory of the Lord, raising our heads to the heavens in worship and praise. And this is why it's so easy to get distracted in the wilderness, because when the priests of God forget who they carry, when we forget our responsibility, when we forget where we need to be, where God is designed, when we forget our place, our role, our function, what our sacred privilege is, when we try to take on someone else's identity, operate in their place in the camp, when we forget to simply rest in the presence of the Lord, worship in his sanctuary, and intercede for others, when we try to leave our position, it creates chaos in the camp. And God will often allow difficult situations to bring order to his house to draw us back to the place we need to be. And Jesus' life and ministry was such that he lived to get his house, his church, 
in order so at the right time they'd be ready to move together from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. And what we see in the opening pages of this book is that the Father got his house in order to prepare his people for a miraculous move. Jesus got his house in order to prepare his people for a miraculous move. And the question I have for you today, beloved, is how is your house? How is your house? Is your house in order? Is your spiritual house in order? Are you ready for God to take you on a miraculous move? Or is there still chaos in the camp? Are you trying to live outside of the calling God has on your life? Are you trying to live in according to the standards of the world, pressures of the people around you to go along with the flow? Or are you, are you standing in the place God has prepared for you as a priest of God? You see, we all struggle. We all fall short. But this is why the priest's role was per, to protect from the judgment and curse of God. To hold each other accountable, to lean on each other, bear each other's burdens, encourage one another, call each other to step forward into our true identity as a child of God so that no curse can take root in the camp. And the tragedy of Israel in the wilderness is that it represents our fallen condition. No matter how much of the goodness of God we experience, there is something in us that keeps pulling us away from the faithfulness of the Lord and simple obedience that stifles the move of God in our lives. But the miracle of the cross and the power of the resurrection is that any time we call on Jesus, we can be brought back into that place of blessing. When we surrender again and say, God, I, I know I was supposed to do this. I know your will was for me to do this, and I made the decision to go over here. He doesn't take us out like he did in the Old Testament. He calls us back home like the prodigal son. And he puts a robe on our back and a ring on our finger. And he rejoices that my son who was lost is now found again. The grace of God, the love of Jesus, is one that is continually working in our lives so that our houses can be in order, so that we're ready for God to move. And that's what I want in my life. I want God to move in my life. I want to surrender. I want to confess. I want to align myself in the areas that stifle his work in my life so God can move in me. Because you know what happens when God moves in you? Not only is your life changed, but so are the lives of the people you come across each and every day. And that's what he wants to move in you for. He wants to move in you to help change the lives of other people. So are you willing to let God help you get your house in order to take his place? to surrender to the things you've been holding on to that have been keeping you stuck in the wilderness? Are you ready to make a move? Let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes as the response music begins to play. What we want to do today is we want to just take a moment and allow the Holy Spirit to highlight some areas in our lives that maybe are out of order. If it was important enough for God to get his house in order before moving the Israelites across the wilderness, if it was important enough for Jesus to get his house in order before he sent the Spirit to prepare us for the move he wanted to take us on, then it's important that we take time 
to get our houses in order. And maybe there's something here today that you need to surrender again. Maybe you need to surrender your relationship with your spouse or with your significant other. Maybe it's a friendship. Maybe it's a hobby or a habit. Maybe it's a priority. Maybe it's how you spend your finances. Maybe there's something out of control or out of balance in your life, an addiction. What is in your life that is out of order? That if you would simply submit it to the Lord, God could position you for a move. Maybe you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. There's never been a time in your life where you called out to God and said, God, I know I've made mistakes. I know I know I've messed up, but I, I've heard so much that, that you love me, and I, and I want to know more about that love. I, I'm ready to, to trust you with my life. I'm ready to, to receive your forgiveness and, and give you my heart. I, I want to begin a relationship with you today. If that's you here today, then... The Word of God says if you confess Jesus with your mouth and believe in your heart God's raised him from the dead, you will be saved. His forgiveness will wash over you. And that is the most important. That is the foundational thing that you can do to get your spiritual house in order for God to begin to move in your life. And right here in this moment, you can just pray along with us. You can pray a simple prayer. If it's from your heart, and you believe it in your heart, God's going to do something in you. He, there's going to be a shift. The Spirit of God's going to come live in you, and you're going to experience life like you've never experienced it. Will everything be good? Not always. Sometimes we walk through wilderness. But you'll have the hope that leads to glory because Jesus will be Lord of your life. And right now, you can just call out to him. You can say, Father, forgive me. I know I've messed up. I know I've made mistakes, but I also know you love me and sent Jesus to take my place, to be my redemption. Please forgive me. Today, I confess Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and I pledge my life to him. Please save me. Change me. Get my house in order because today I'm ready to move with you in Jesus' name. With every head bowed, every eye closed, no one looking around. If you, if you prayed that for the first time today, you invited Jesus into your life, we want to rejoice with you. We're not going to call you out. We're not going to uh, make a spectacle. But if you just slip your hand up and say, Pastor Joey, I prayed that. I want to pray a blessing over you today. Anyone at all? Amen. Well, in church, as we've been allowing the Spirit of God to speak, if there's something in your life you need to surrender, our prayer team is down front. We're going to be here to pray for you, pray with you, pray over you. If there's some things you want us to, as the priests of God, to come along and, and pray with you about, to intercede, to help build you up. We invite you for the next few moments to come and to kneel and to pray and allow God to work and move. If you have uh, issues in your body. If you need prayer for healing, our team will be down front to pray with you. If there are just uh, other people you want to pray for, somebody in your life that's struggling, you want to pray together, then you can come and pray. If uh, 
you still don't have that unction to pray, but you have something on your heart in your worship guide, there's a connection card. You can fill that out, put in the comment section on the back what your prayer request is, drop that in the bucket in the back, and we'll be praying for those at our, our prayer night tonight. But for the next few moments, let's just encounter the Lord in prayer. You come. at Vertical Life Church. We want to say thank you for listening. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to www.blchurch.tv forward slash give. Thank you and God bless.